from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. I'll be reading from the Russian Bible. Ибо слово о кресте для погибающих юродство есть, а для нас, спасаемых, сила Божья. Ибо написано, погублю мудрость мудрецов и разум разумных Отвергну, где мурцер, мудрец, где книжник, где совопрозник века сего? Не обратил ли Бог мудрость мира сего в безумии? Ибо когда мир своей мудростью не познал Бога, премудрости Божьей, то благоугодно было Богу и родством Проведи спасти верующих, ибо и иудеи требуют чудес, и елени ищут мудрости, а мы проповедуем Христа распятого для иудеев соблазн, а для еленов безумие, для сами же призванных иудеев и еленов Христа, Божью силу и Божью премудрость. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the invitation from Pastor Bob and from your mission staff. And um, he's generous to characterize and help um, make more familiar what we do on a university setting as a work of mission and a work of outreach um, and expanding the gospel into a place um, where it doesn't often go. Um, Today I'm speaking on, in this title that you've seen, Wisdom in the Public Square. And um, to do that today, I'm going to uh, set along a bit of a, um, a narrative of wisdom in the public square from creation through to Christ. Um, what is this idea of, of wisdom in the public square? Uh, after um, President Carter uh, left office, uh, he was invited to speak in Japan, and he went to give a talk, and he began his talk uh, with a story and with a joke. And he told the joke, and the translator translated it. And um, nothing happened. So President Carter uh, told a second joke, and the translator um, translated, and everyone uh, opened up into laughter. And so President Carter was intrigued by this, and so at the end of the talk, he went to the translator and said, what happened? And he said, well, you told a joke, and I translated it, and they didn't laugh. So you told a second joke, and I said, President Carter has told another joke. Please laugh. And um, on the one hand, uh, jokes don't translate. It's kind of a known thing about anthropology. And, um, but it shows uh, of this translator 
um, a unique expression of wisdom in the public square. Uh, to be able to think on his feet, to be able to um, apply a bit of diplomatic um, sense to save a situation and to keep the president on track. So this is this idea of wisdom in the public square. I share that. It has a bit of a, a sense of truth to it that wisdom's more than about accumulating knowledge. There's a sense of the whole of things, of the sense of, of um, a moment and what fits into each moment. And so I want to suggest... Um, a fairly strong vision of wisdom in the public square that I think the church needs to develop and needs to hone if we're going to have a confident and a persuasive voice and effective gospel in education, especially in higher education. But I think this applies to the whole way that we form and educate the church and our culture. Now, the story of, of wisdom in the public square I'll tell in three parts Wisdom in the creation in the beginning, wisdom in a fallen world, and wisdom in the resurrection. And wisdom in the beginning begins in this um, familiar, overly familiar, perhaps, context of Genesis 2 and 3 that we've heard many, many times. And we hear it enough and then we stop listening to it. But when we think of wisdom in the public square... I want to read this in particular through the lens of the trees and the fruit that God has placed in the garden. God uh, begins to form the garden and as he makes it and these rivers begin to move out, it says that he planted every tree in the garden that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. And he plants Adam in the midst of the garden and he plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the middle. And his command to Adam in encountering and in entering into this garden is very specific. And literally, we could translate it this way, of every tree in the garden, eat, eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you do, you will die, die. And it's this clever way of Genesis in wordplay that picks up on knowledge and desire. He says to him after he's created the woman, and he gives, uh, gives the woman to, to uh, Adam. Adam says back, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Repeating this Genesis theme. And if we read the story through this um, concept of the trees and of looking for wisdom... We get the sense of what um, a, a picture of humanity. I had said in the earlier service, I'm, um, I was a biology major. And um, Genesis 2 and 3 is not um, a lesson in agriculture and botany, primarily. I think it is a lens into our human condition. And so as this story is being told, we should be able to hear a story of our engagement with the world, that is the place we garden and food and work for our nourishment, that it is complicated by boundaries of thirst and desire and of moral forbidden nature. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard calls, calls this the anxiety of humanity that hangs over us as we walk through the world. And that is the precise card that the serpent plays when he eats Eve in the garden is this very tension of our humanity, right? He does not offer a logical treatise about the goodness of this fruit and its nutrients. He enters in at the level of desire and human freedom. 
did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And this careful shading of the rule, you know, lures Eve into that, that kind of rationalization that we're so a native to. Well, the rule says 15 items or less, but what it means, the speed limit is for this. I know what they mean when they want the safe context. And there's that kind of, I think that's what we're meant to see. Not that Adam and Eve are so simple that they can't follow a simple rule. But that the rules in our human nature are so wound to our desire and our knowledge that it's very difficult to make our way in the world. Uh, an example um, that's very easy to see this in is that we all have some rules in our lives or things that we know. Whether it's the doctor who says you shouldn't eat that or you should do this every day or the moral limitations that we know. I shouldn't look at that. I shouldn't think about that. And that the very things we're drawn to, another bite of cake, another drink, another thought, another look. And all of us have that condition. And I think the very reason that Genesis opens with this story, or a very large part of it, is to say, God made you that way. And even though in a scientific age you can imagine pulling reason and thought away from the desires and the impulses of your heart and your sense of beauty, in reality, you're deceiving yourselves because they are knit together. And so it is that Eve goes and she sees that the tree, the fruit is good for food. And it's a delight to the eyes and desirable for making one wise. The draw to knowledge for us has always been in humanity a pull to power, a pull to control, a pull to autonomy, to crossing the boundary into God's world, to knowing what we need not know, to using knowledge in ways we should not. And so it is easy for Eve at this point, who's, who's so committed her will to this, to take the fruit and give it to her husband. And it is the serpent's voice that makes it so difficult. And I think the main point of the serpent's voice in that story is to sympathize with the power of cultural voices. That Apple and Amazon and HBO and whatever and, and um, Audi and everybody else has over us. And voices and friends and schools. There's an appeal of voices that make human life difficult to walk well, to walk morally. And there's an amazing way that Genesis 2 and 3 capture what it is to be human in a modern world. And the struggles we face and the life we live. And Christians know well to move quickly from there to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly and we can move to Matthew 1.1 and skip over the rest of the Old Testament. But I'm an Old Testament scholar and so I just pause here to say that when Jesus says, search the scriptures because they speak of me, that something is happening when God delays for a very long time with the nation of Israel and leaves them in this world and then pours into them revelation and help and aids and prophets and teachers to equip them to live in the post-Genesis world, in the post-Genesis reality. And the Old Testament is full of the narrative and of the stories and the equipping and the education that Israel had to cope in the world like ours. And Proverbs is probably the book par excellence of education, of wisdom in the public square. 
If you know Genesis, I matter, or Proverbs, uh, most of you are familiar, I, su- I suspect, with these ten lectures in chapters 1 to 9. They begin, hear my son, your father's teaching, do not reject your mother's instruction. Hear, my son, do not forsake. Hear, my son, pursue wisdom. Hear, my son, love wisdom and she will love you. Do not let go of her. And the father appeals to the son over and over. What's probably less known and um, more interesting is that over half of those verses are actually about four women. In all these teachings about insight and instruction and understanding, there's this appeal to these four women and over half of the verses are about women. What's going on? Two of the women are real concrete women. There's the wife. The son is to drink from his own sisters from the springs that she gives. There's this real nuptial invitation. The woman that's yours, eat, eat. It's an invitation of God to desire that God grants to us like the trees of all the trees. God doesn't tell us in the midst of temptation, run away to a hermitage but says, eat, eat of the trees I give. That God is not a God against pleasure, but he's, against, he's a God of pleasure within form and within boundaries. And so Proverbs has this way of giving this form of the wife, but of the adulteress, of the prostitute. Do not go into her. And those warnings, almost a third of the sayings warn against this temptation because it's so common. And the father's not just saying, be careful about sexual immorality. He's saying, making your way in the world and having wisdom and knowledge is very much like the temptation you feel as an adolescent moving into adulthood. If you can master those pressures, you'll be equipped to handle wisdom in the public square. And Proverbs kind of climaxes with these two women and their speeches that we heard from part of one today. Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly. And they appeal to the young man, sensually, and in every other way. Wisdom says, come to my house, we read today. I have prepared a feast. I've mixed my wine. I've slaughtered my beasts. I love those who love me. Seek me and you will find me. I am better than gold, much fine gold, more valuable than silver, more precious than rubies. And to those who grasp hold of her, can anybody finish it? She is the tree of life. Proverbs has got Genesis on its mind. There's fruit, there's pleasures, there's women, and there's public voices. Folly says, come to my house. For stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. There's the captivation of foreign desires. My husband has gone away on a long journey. He's not at home. He's taken his money sacks with him. Come, let us drink deeply of love until morning. And chapter 9 ends. But the young man that goes in does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the very pit of Sheol. This is wisdom and folly. These are public voices. And this is Proverbs, one of its ways of speaking to wisdom in the public square. As young men and young women move into adulthood, this is how they were equipped to face the life and of education and vocation and career with these images and with these narratives. And I want to suggest today uh, most strongly that the vision that Proverbs and the Old Testament had for education 
is not just an intense spiritual vision. What I mean is that Genesis was like, uh, be good, and Proverbs is like, really be good. Like somehow that's going to push us over the, the hump and we're going to be obedient this time. I think instead what's going on in Proverbs is that there's an invitation to a formative way of life. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, in, the, in its setting in the Hebrew Bible that the ancient Jews would have had, Proverbs is followed by the book of Ruth, not by Ecclesiastes. And then by Song of Songs, and then Ecclesiastes. And these five books that follow Proverbs are the books that are read at the annual Jewish festivals three times a year. And they read those readings at the festival. And the other thing that happened at the festivals, according to Leviticus and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, is children are to say to dad, dad, what is the meaning of this bread? Dad, what is the meaning of this lamb? Dad, what is the meaning of this day? And the father is to answer, when we were captives in Egypt, God heard us and came and rescued us. And so Proverbs' images of feasting are not out of nowhere. They are images of Israel's festival seasons when the young boy is eating and drinking and singing and at the temple worshiping and the father is shaping a son for adult life in the presence of food and of community and of a story of redemption. And I'm setting this up as this way of education that is so rich in the Bible so rich for Israel that that is how people are formed in this whole way of life. Now I want to turn to wisdom in the public square in the resurrection, but before I do, or as I do, I want to sit on this moment of the Israel, Israelite festival season for briefly, just for a moment, and, and imagine that in our own world. It seems so foreign. Who would do that anymore? We're Christians. We don't have to do rituals. And so we're quite free. But I want to suggest to you that not only is this festival relevant to it, but we all live in the midst of it, neck deep. We're, we're, we're um, completely immersed in it. My oldest son is a sophomore in college. My daughter, uh, my next daughter is um, a senior, and i got a son behind that. So our house is full of brochures and college pamphlets and catalogs and mom and dad, I'm a, a mom and dad sweatshirts and hats and logos and donor appeals and these catalogs come in i've been to the briefings i've been to the to the shows and walked the campuses and their sprawling lawns mr jefferson welcomes you to the university of virginia i've been and watched these things over and over again and i tell you this because my suggestion is that on the festival seasons and the formations of youth that the university is winning hands down because they've got their festival seasons. They've got Parents Weekend. And they've got the rival basketball game. And they've got homecoming. When you bring your offerings. And you get the sweatshirt. And you get the alma mater. And you get the song. And you got the catalogs and the banner on the wall. And we welcome our kids into this. I mean, look at the front of the catalogs. Beautiful people on beautiful lawns being happy. Custom order your meal in our dorms. Private rooms, lazy rivers, if you don't know, that's the new fad in universities. You can have a, and these massive spas. The more money is going into student living than anything in the university today. 
It is a ritual, festival, formative culture. And the kids come out and they know what a successful career is like. And they know what education's for. And they know that a 60-hour work week is normal. And they know that beauty is important. And that significance is, is important and power. And the name of your university is your identity. And we're drawn into this formative process. And I speak every Friday night or every other Friday night at the campus ministries. And I show up among beautiful, devoted students in a sterile room and we sing decent music and open a bag of Oreos. I don't mean to offend these students or what I'm doing in opening the word to them, but I know what's going on on Friday night when we're sitting there. And it's good. I know what's going on at the clubs. I know what's going on in the frats. I know what's going on in the dorms. And there's cultural formation that's way more powerful than a lot of what we're doing. And who owns that knowledge? When the students tell me they show up in class, they know if they can speak Christianly or not. Why? Because they've been formed. In sociology, you don't mention you're a Christian. And I just suggest to you how powerful that message and that culture is in our own day. And that it's worth the church thinking about this notion of wisdom in the public square a little more seriously. If we want to think seriously about education. Paul, it happens, the disciple, the apostle that's called to Corinth in the letter we read today. There's historians that would know this better than me, but in the ancient Greek culture, there was a very powerful um, tradition known as the symposium. And uh, Plato and Aristotle would have been a part of the symposium. And it began with these Bacchanalian um, licentious feasts. And there's food and there's festival. And there's formative festival and we read poetry and we talk about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Plotinus. And formative learning is taking place in the Greek culture for centuries and centuries. As early as when Proverbs finally was being formed. There seems to be an awareness of that Greek culture. And Paul writes in a letter into Corinth at one of the premier centers of education and of wealth. And he gives them this letter that begins with, get your education now, do what you love. Join our university. He says, no. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified. A stumbling blocks to Jews. Foolishness to the Greeks. I think Paul does three things for this church in Corinth. And tries to establish them. He doesn't say, run away from Corinth and modern education. It's evil. He embeds them in that community and equips them to live there. And he gives them the cross as their story. In ancient Israel, when the son asks the father, Father, what is the meaning of this bread? And he says, Egypt, son, Egypt. The promise to Abraham. Moses. Paul says, when your children ask you, what's the meaning of this day, of this bread, you say the cross. Die to yourself and live again. The cross is a symbol, but it's a story. We sang that today. I sing of all the things you've done for me. Sorry, I paraphrased that, but I was thinking that. We sing of all the things that God has done for us. Paul gives Corinth a story. Chapter 1. It is the cross. It is the king of glory who took on flesh and died. That is your king. That is your story. That is your claim to fame. 
And it is a narrative because we know the narrative of culture and the narrative of the university is a powerful one. And I think somehow we need to embed education in the narrative of the cross. As Paul said, I came to you in suffering. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in nothingness. And yet I had a claim. And he gives that up and gives them an example and he gives them a story. Chapters 9 and 10, he gives them the sacraments. He gives them baptism and he gives them the Eucharist. The formative meal that comes out of the Passover meal. And notice how formative it is because what's happened is the people show up. The wealthy are eating first and taking off. The poor are coming late. People are getting drunk. Right? So we've got a mess. So the dean comes in and just cancels the whole thing. And Paul recognizes how formative meals and community is. So Paul says, stop and wait for one another. The meal is a coming together. It's a oneness. Jew, Greek, wealthy, poor, intelligent or not. The community is formative. Wait and break bread. Take of a common cup. Now we try and do this at the university. I don't think we have the solution. We're just starting there. We try and have students in our homes. We have residences where we have men and women live together with chores. And trust me, it's tricky. It's your turn to cook. And why do these girls always drift away when it's time to do dishes? And there's conflict. But in the living together, we're trying to create a different formative process among our students that says we can live out our story here in a formative way that transforms who we become, that becomes our response to wisdom in the public square. And then in a culture that so prizes income and title, Paul is talking in the midst of gifts. You know, all of chapter 12, 13, and 14, everybody wants to be gifted. I mean, it's got to be, it's like a bumper sticker culture. How far have you run? You know, what school did you go to? My kid's an honor student. I mean, everybody in Corinth has got a message that somebody needs to hear. And Paul says, but desire above all this, love. I almost think sometimes he's being humorous. I mean, there's this sense of all these things you want to be known for. Desire love and then use those gifts. If I preach with the tongue of angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul calls them to a virtuous life, to a way of living with one another. A motto that sets the context for how they will live. I, I teach a class on vocation and a whole lesson on the do what you love movement. Follow your passion. I don't find that in the, in the Bible anywhere. I do find love the people you're around with the work you do. And it will take some work for us in the academy and in our culture to tell that narrative well among the people that we work with among our own lives that it is love for God and for the world not love for work not love for knowledge that drives us I end with this appeal this beautiful appeal from woman wisdom if you know in Proverbs chapter 8 the longest poem in Proverbs that um, John and Hebrews borrow from it's the woman who says I was with him in the creation before the seas were formed, before he carved out the face of the deep, I was there. And woman wisdom appeals, I've been there from the very beginning. I know what you are headed for. It's the beauty, this is why I'm a Proverbs scholar. It is so beautiful. She has a long-term vision. I know where the thing is going. And at the end of her speech, she says, so now my son listens to me. 
Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear my instructions and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is he who listens to me, who watches daily at my gates and waits beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father Almighty, we uh, lean upon you, God of all wisdom, who generously gives knowledge and insight, who in Christ Jesus, crucified and risen, gives us power and gives us strength and gives us the mind of Christ to live well in a world that tempts us, well in a world that is difficult for us. Pour into us the spirit of wisdom to live out the cross in our communities, in our life, in our spheres of education, in our homes. We pray all this in the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing.